This is Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences. This is a special edition where we're recapping what happened at MEX 16, the 16th international edition of the MEX conference, which was held in London on the 12th and 13th of October. Don't forget, you can find show notes linking to everything we talk about in the podcast at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Welcome. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of Mex. And I'm Alex Guest, the co-host of the Mex podcast. So Alex, it's good to be back in front of the microphone. I'm conscious we have been absent for a little while. Absent, but not necessarily idle. Do you want to tell people a bit about what we've been up to over the last month? Well, Marek, it's been very busy. Um, I have to say that uh, you know we're, we're going to have to talk about Basel, but uh, we'll keep that for, for slightly later in the podcast. Um, but first of all, let me just say that you know the last month has been um, preparing and indeed delivering the uh, the MEX uh, conference, which we had uh, on the 12th and 13th of October. And uh, for me, at least, I found that uh, hugely inspiring and, and great to, to meet with and speak with so many people from the, the MEX community. But so over to you, Marek. What for you was the standout, standout moment for, from, the, from the conference? You know, this was the 16th. Mechs. And obviously, we've seen a huge range of different participants over the years from all kinds of different industry backgrounds, all kinds of different job functions. You know, that diversity really is a, is a hallmark of the Mechs events. But what really struck me about this one was the enthusiasm of the participants. I mean, we've been very lucky with Mechs over the years that people have always been very participatory. But this group really stood out in the way in which they just got stuck in to the event as a whole, um, to engaging with all of their fellow participants, and for some of the workshop exercises which we'd arranged with uh, different partners and some which we designed ourselves. Um, and that was really how we started the two days yeah. that we shared with everyone. I have to say that that was also, for me, uh, quite a revelation. Obviously, um, I, I, I've been involved to a certain extent with with Max for five years now and there's always good participation but this was on a different level and I'm just wondering wh- why do you think that was well I mean we could put it down to the food and the amount of cookies that were provided to people early on in the day which I think always helps stimulate a, a good discussion um, but if we get you know a bit more into the detail of it I think there was something about the combination of timing and topic, which made people very up for this discussion. Um, broadly, you know, we'd set the theme several months out from the event of this idea of the unknown and trying to push a bit further, both in terms of discovering emerging technologies which are going to have an influence on digital experience design about four or five years into the future, but also on the way in which some of the methods that we employ to put user-centered design process at the heart of designing best digital experiences um, under the microscope and to try and get people thinking a bit more deeply about some of the routines that perhaps they've got into as design practitioners or strategists um, and to maybe rethink some of those and start to look at in the context of some of these new things which are going to become possible with emerging technologies, are those methods sufficient? Um, so perhaps it was just a, a timely moment to to have those discussions. Uh, and we were lucky that everyone came along quite fired up for them, I think. Yeah, and I, I know that you had some thoughts about um, some of the sort of transitional process that we're going through right now. Yeah, I mean, why don't we start um, with how we started the event itself, which was to try and set the scene as this moment of transition, which I think we're on the cusp of at the moment. And already there've been some discussions and some essays and some of the things we've talked about in the previous episodes of the podcast, which I think have touched on this, but we really tried to clarify in people's minds that we're at a point in time in digital where we're moving broadly from what have been two-dimensional canvases defined by an X and a Y axis to an epoch where 
I think those digital experiences are going to be much better described by the metaphor of an orb, something which encapsulates an experience that has properties of depth, uh, which has a variety of different multi-sensory elements to it, and which is much more rich and encompassing than the kind of digital experiences than we've been used to seeing in the past through the screens of our laptops or our smartphones or our tablets or our, our TVs. Um, so we started the event trying to get people to really think what that kind of broadening of digital experience design is going to mean uh, and cited a few examples to, to get them looking at that. Uh, and I know that the multi-sensory element of that caught your attention, but also you're quite interested i know in this idea of how that's actually changing the way in which we deliver particular services in a way that maybe is better described not as an app or a website but as something a, a bit different yeah I, I you know multi-sensory design could just be you know we we, we have things like the the tactic engine in, in in the iphone 7 which could just be a sort of a you know just a a, a way of getting some feedback that is uh that is haptic um, but there's much more going on, particularly with this latest generation of, of iOS 10 and iPhone 7 and, and no doubt in, in other things. And, and for me, I think we're going into uh, an age where uh, functionality is, is distributed. And what do I mean by that? I mean that accessing certain functions that typically you would access through an app or through a website you can now access in different sorts of ways. So iOS 10 now has really built uh, a number of different methods for user engagement, for user interface with apps. And, and the user interface is no longer, you know, this, this idea that you tap into an app and, and it comes up and it has some functionality. Whether you, whether you speak to that app or whether you, 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 you type words or, or, or whatever it is, it's now the idea that you don't need to go into the app that that app is distributed throughout different processes within um, the, the, the the operating system and across the device. So um, to be specific about it, for example, now uh, Siri um, uh, and, and Siri Kit enables the, the developer to design function that uh, sits outside of the app but is part of the app. So for example, you can order... Uh, uber to come and pick you up just by asking siri to do that um, or some of the other things for example uh, using 3d touch just you know f pressing down a bit harder and having some functionality that normally sits in the app coming up and and you know apple's come up with two things one which is uh, the, the static functions where that button is always producing the same thing but also these dynamic functions so for example um, it could pop up the uh, the exchange rate um, in a dynamic way so that you always know what the latest, you know, pound euro exchange rate is, for example, or, or something of that kind. And then this greater emphasis on widgets, making them much clearer, much bigger, and, and enabling much more functionality again in a quite a dynamic way. And this last piece, which um, I think is also worth mentioning, is the new iMessaging um, functionality. And, and here I think there is we've got quite a long way to go. But for example, you can share through iMessage uh, using, say, the City Mapper. Uh, app uh, where you are and where you're going to be and share that with with someone else through iMessage which again is um, a nice bit of functionality that can be quickly and easily shared without having to go into the app. So what I think is really interesting about all of those very practical tangible examples is that they feel like and I think at the event were accepted as um, the, the tip of the iceberg if you like that what they do is establish um, a first mark in the ground for this wider conceptual broadening that the silos between apps are being broken down and the way in which users are able to engage with those kind of features from different service providers um, is becoming much more diffused across uh the experience of the individual device, but potentially across multiple devices as well. Uh, and they hint at this um, much broader future of digital experience design, which is coming. And, you know, as a way of, of starting the event, that did seem to capture people's imaginations. Um, but it quite quickly took us on to the question of, okay, if we accept that that 
broadening is happening uh, and that it's going to be possible to engage with users in a whole variety of more creative ways. Well, what does that actually mean for our design practice? You know, how do we um, create experiences which feel meaningful in that new world and take advantage of those capabilities? You know, we figured when we were planning the event that we needed to take people through an exercise which gave them a sense of what that could feel like. Do you want to tell people a bit about how we went from that sort of opening idea to doing something a little bit practical to, to get a sense of where we might find that kind of future design inspiration? Yeah, and Mar- I've always enjoyed facilitating and, and even participating previously in, in these um, in the workshop elements to, to MEX. Uh, for me, they're a great way of, of both learning things uh, practically, but also uh, of, of actually chatting with, with people who are involved in, in the event in a different way. But th- this time it was a little bit different. So we got everyone together um, and we got them to think a little bit about um, how perhaps the present or even the past will inform the future. And so based on one of the uh, initiatives that you got going recently, the, the MEX Signs initiative that perhaps Twitter followers have noticed. Yes, um, it's the, the hashtag MEX Science. We'll include a link in the show notes. You can go and check out some of the examples that people have been finding or perhaps share some of your own. Yeah, and, 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 and I guess we are just absolutely surrounded by signs everywhere. And, and I, I think you're now plagued by them, if I'm not mistaken, Merrick. But, um, it's one of those but, things that's quite difficult to unsee once you start looking for these things. Um, and I figured given that it's becoming a bit of an addiction for me, um, you know, we should share that that joy with uh, our participants at Mex. Well, I'm I'm trying to avoid the addiction actually, uh, but it's it's hard not to notice them, as you say. Um, but so so we we got everyone together and we we went off and we we uh, having just got everyone to sit down, we then got them all to stand up and, and leave the building, um, and just go out and and find different sorts of signs. And what became very apparent when they came back into the into the room, you know, just ten minutes later was the vast number of different sorts of signs that are out there. Absolutely. I mean, I think we'd set them the task in the interest of time of just capturing three different signs or marks in the physical environment in the two or three streets around the building where we were holding the conference. Um, But it was actually quite difficult to pull people away from the task once people started looking for these things and noticing that actually everything from the marks on the road to uh, the brand signage on different buildings um, to even the way in which uh, people had chained up bicycles to railings. You know, all of these things were little signposts which tell us something about the objects, about the way people interact with their environment. Once people started noticing those, uh, they really you know, got quite into the task. And we came back with a wealth of different photos from the exercise. Which would you say was the most unusual one? <laughs> so for me, um, far and away, uh, the, the best example it was actually it was someone who was in the, the group that I was with. And uh, they spotted a very sad, lonely looking dog who uh, was sitting outside a hairdressing salon, uh, presumably waiting um, for their owner to come out and take them off for their morning walk. And this dog uh, had a bandage around its paw. Um, and it looked at us with these big sort of doleful doggy eyes. And on the bandage, it just said no chew uh, in very bright green letters on a sort of fluorescent yellow background. And it really engaged the group because it raised all sorts of questions about the role of humour within signage, uh, about the use of colour, about the question of who is that sign actually for? I mean, much as this was a very thoughtful looking dog, I fear he was probably not capable of understanding what was written on his uh, bandage himself. Um, But it it raised all sorts of different questions around that. And it certainly got the discussion going uh, among the group, um, as well as, you know, just providing a a good highlight of the the field trip outing that morning. Yeah, absolutely. I think really that one was was probably the winner. I can't think of any that's more unexpected than, than that particular one. But as you um, say, a pretty diverse range which came out of them. Uh, I mean, everyone, uh, we sort of broadly split into three teams as we went off to go and do this with you um, going along with one group, Patrizia going with another, me, me taking another one. And 
you know, there was a, a great deal of variety, including different perspectives on the same thing. I think there were people from separate teams who ended up photographing the same um, bike lock railing, but from different angles with slightly different takes on the language, which again, you know, brought up this interesting question of, yeah, all of these things, I guess, are down to the context in which they're interpreted. Yeah. And, and I guess that sort of leads us on to the next part of, of the exercise, which was to, to, to come back in and then to just select one of, of the signs and, and, and just highlight the reasons why that was selected and, and perhaps to, to draw out some principles so, Mary, that was all good fun. Um, but what was the, the sort of the wider learning that we could we could take away from it? Yes, yeah, so there was a, a method to our madness with this. Uh, I mean, firstly, uh, there's something about doing a participatory exercise like that early on in an event, and it was all structured so that people could work in teams and in pairs and get outside and get moving, which just helps get people engaged for the two days of the event itself. So. It had a value in that sense, um, but in terms of how it linked into the overall theme, the idea with looking at these kind of signs in the physical world uh, was to start to get people going back to some of the first principles, which I think can help us reimagine what digital experience design is going to need to look like as it goes from being something which exists purely on a flat 2D canvas to something which has properties of depth, either in the sense of some of these virtual reality experiences that we know are coming down the line, or in the sense of some of the sort of depth light um, experiences, which we're already starting to see uh, with the introduction of things like 3D touch on the iPhone. Uh, So it was about getting people to get back to that sense of re-examining some of their core design principles uh, and starting to look outside of just um, the benchmarks which have been established around things like flat design or mobile first or you know, whatever happens to be the latest design style within the digital world uh, and to start to think about the reasons why we arrived at those styles in the first place and how they might need to be adjusted for the future. Uh, And that was just step one of of the workshop. There was uh, another stage, which perhaps we'll talk about a little bit later on, because it came later on in the flow of the event, which all of this was was leading up to. Um, But of course, the other big part of any event like MEX is all of the insight which is brought by the different speakers that we had participating. Um, Now, you took on the role of moderating all the Q&As and discussions that happened after the, the speaker sessions, Alex. But were there any in particular which really stood out for you? Lots of them. In fact, probably all of them stood out in some in some way. I, I guess one of the other things that um, the workshop highlighted was was really the one of the key things uh, that is you know fundamental to to good user experience design is the research side of things. And we had um, quite a lot of discussion around user experience research, and, and we had uh, some great talks from 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 three different people at different organisations, uh, just going through some of their experience in um, in, in uh, developing solutions uh, in quite different contexts. So uh, that for me was, was something that was really worth uh, diving into. One of the ones that really stood out for that was actually one of our very first talks uh, from from Rachel Yu was talking about designing uh, an education service solution um, in China. Um, So we're talking here a very different cultural context. And one of the things that came out from the research was there were multiple stakeholders involved in the education of, uh, of, of children. And those stakeholders had uh, different ideas and had conflicting motivations, and they also had different levels of motivation. Uh, and so all of that was a, a vast amount of complexity, and it really struck me how how important it is to, to research in depth and, and before you can even really start to, to think about designing a, a service. Yeah, absolutely. And Rachel, yeah, I think had come from quite an interesting background with that, where she, I think, had deliberately sought out this challenge of trying to understand cultural nuances, which were quite different to those that she grew up around. She went and spent this time in Shanghai working with this organization, which uh, teaches English as a foreign language to children in China. Uh, And for her as a practitioner, it meant getting up to speed with all kinds of uh, different 
environments, uh, different stakeholder needs, which she wasn't accustomed to. Uh, and I think really challenged her to um, come up with some new methods and an overarching framework for tying all of that together. And personally, what I was really struck by with this was uh, just how uh, complex a set of needs she was dealing with, um, but also you know, how much they managed to achieve in a relatively short period of time to solve some really quite fundamental problems with this system, where clearly the teachers weren't happy with the way in which it was structured because it was putting huge pressure on them uh, in terms of marking and communicating the progress of students to parents. The parents weren't happy because there was this level of anxiety over not having visibility of information on the way in which children were progressing through the system. And the children themselves were under considerable pressure because you know, there's a limited number of places as the education funnel continues. Uh, and just by getting into the depths of those motivations, you know, they were able to make some suggestions which made tangible improvements uh, in each of those different areas, which, you know, is a, a real sign of progress, I think, uh, and perhaps indicative of where a lot of these service design challenges are going to be going for design practitioners in the future, that it's no longer going to be about solving you know, relatively simple contained problems. There's going to be an element of um, systemic uh, thinking within uh, many projects which design practitioners take on in the future, and that it's going to require a bit of a different skill set to, to do those successfully. And I think that complexity was also born through in the uh, the talks from Emily Tullow uh, from Mindwave, and, and also from Jonathan Chippendale and and Anna Moutinho from from Holition, um, who again had very different projects they were looking at, but um, and and but both of those talks also uh, looked at the complexity and and how important that complexity is in resolving that complexity, um, in coming up with solutions. One of the things that Holition really struck me with was how they had decided to take a scientific approach. Um, and, and I think they said they were spending 30% of their time on on really developing science um, around user experience um, in order to inform their their creativity and the solutions that they came up with for, for clients. So, so that, that for me was quite a staggering bit of um, uh, investment into, into, into research. Absolutely. And I think a, a standout hallmark of them as an organization, especially when you consider the market in which they're operating. So Jonathan Chippendale, who's the CEO there, um, co-presented alongside Anna Martino, who looks after their user research. And yeah, he set an important context for this, which is that uh, firstly, luxury brands are uh, generally quite backward uh, in the way in which they approach user-centered um, design methods in their digital services. But also that there's been this tendency to spend on these sort of white elephant projects, which end up costing large amounts of budget, but essentially are just digital playthings to kind of create something um, big and whizzy, but that doesn't necessarily have any user value. Uh, for these very well-known brands. Now, that's the market in which Holition operates, uh, but they take a very different approach. You know, this one which is really grounded both in the strength of some of their technology, which you know, they're really at the cutting edge of uh, in terms of what they're doing with things like augmented and, and virtual reality, but also ensuring that there is that rigor behind the user-centered design process that goes alongside it. Uh, so in a market like that, you know, that commitment to user research has really enabled them to, to stand out and was one of the reasons why we wanted them to come along and, and, and participate at the event. And it ended up being a, a very interesting session. Um, you also mentioned Emily Tallow there. Now, what was it that caught um, your eye particularly with her presentation? Because as you say, that was rather different looking at some of the things around uh, researching with children in particular. Yeah, and, and, and really specifically around uh, teenage experiences. Uh, and and uh, again, it was being more scientific with the data um, that really jumped out at me. Some of the things that she highlighted were the amount of bias that you bring to a research project as a facilitator and, and how necessary it is to take yourself out of that um, so that you can really understand what's going on. I mean, if, if, if you look at some of the sort of generalizations that people have about young people and uh, millennials and, and some of the stereotypes that, that 
come out of that. You know, for example, she highlighted this this idea that millennials are individualistic, but then she also pointed out, well, but in fact, they also prove to be very generous. And, and on the one hand, they seem to be very confident, but actually they're also very anxious. Um, and, and so I think uh, what's clear is that you need to break down those stereotypes and, and, and really come away from that and really observe what's going on um, rather than just thinking about the, the, the simple labels that you might stick onto a bunch of people. So, so that, was, that was really great, you know, just avoiding generalization um, and then drawing your conclusions from proper research. And so that, that for me was um, the standout message from, from Emily's talk to me. As you say, you know, part of that wider discussion about the value of user research and the subtlety of what separates good user research from average user research and how that can inform you know really the success of the whole experience design project um, which it was a vital part of, of the discussion it's something that i know we were very keen to ensure came through strongly when we were planning the agenda for the event um, another Part of it, though, as well, was trying to get people thinking about this issue of multisensory design and how you take some tangible steps towards uh, both at a practical level and a, a conceptual level, um, embracing multisensory design, perhaps in you know slightly unexpected ways and in uh, digital experiences which you might not necessarily associate with with multisensory design. And we were lucky to have. Yeah, some really inspiring ideas on this from Flying Object, um, where Tom Percy and Peter Law came along and designed a bit of a workshop for us. Now, at the start of the podcast, you dropped in a hint that we were going to be talking about Basil. And this feels like the moment at which you should explain just who or what Basil was in this context. Yes, I think it is that time, isn't it? So Basil, um, we're talking about the plant here, the uh, much-loved uh, herb used in Italian cooking and uh, also in some kitchens around uh, England. The idea was to get us to think about cross-modal, multi-sensory design. Um, and uh, the guys from Flying Object came up with a uh, quite a, a wonderful little fast-paced workshop um, where they got us to think about basil in lots of different ways. Um, the, the, the very first part was just, you know, basil... Uh, we all know has has smell and taste, and they try to get us to rank five different um, spices, uh, including cloves and and peppermint tea and licorice and star anise. Which these were the the, the component flavors that comprise basil. I think. I mean, this was this surprised me a little bit because I'd really not thought about basil at that sort of molecular level before but uh, they'd done some research into it apparently those are the five sort of core component flavors yeah exactly and, and so at this point we're really, we're still talking about the, the flavor side of basil but quite quickly this just went in the sort of direction that you know you would never expect to to to, to talk about with with basil now basil is a plant that is is green but um quite quickly we were thinking about basil as a color and what color would we link to, to basil and and the surprising answer from for most people in the room was not green um, certainly in the group that I was in everyone went either straight you know we had a color wheel there and and, and we all pretty much thought immediately that basil was purple and uh, or, or near purple uh, on this color wheel um, and, and, you know, this is this is, for me was was absolutely fascinating. How is it that we can think of basil as purple without even, you know, I mean, it's a, it was an exciting workshop, but no one was confused about it. And, and the idea that your mind can associate colors with smell and flavor in such a in such a way is was for me very eye opening. Well, indeed. And, you know, it came out of some uh, project work that Flying Object had been doing with the Tate. Um, people might remember, if they've been listening to the podcast for a while, we actually spoke to Peter Law of Flying Object in one of the early episodes about this Tate Sensorium project that they did, where they worked with the Tate to select a number of different paintings, uh, which would then be displayed in a special part of the gallery where people could augment the experience of looking 
at these paintings uh, and experiencing them in different ways uh, using things like haptic technologies, using flavors that had been created alongside them, um, using different smells and sounds to create experiences which both enhanced the visual image that they're looking at in the painting, but also became something in of themselves. And I think this was the wider point here, which the workshop gradually took us towards um, from this very you know, fun, engaging, sensory starting point of uh, getting into the detail of what Basil really is. We started to then see the links with actually how you can use an element of a brand or a service as your starting point and then begin to think about all of the different ways you can enrich that uh, by interacting digitally and emotionally with different parts of the sensory spectrum. Yeah. And, and, you know, the last part of that was thinking about if we had a pop-up shop selling um, basil pesto, uh, what would it be like? And all those different thoughts that we put together, things, and, and when you start thinking about textures of materials, uh, you think about smells and sounds and and um, colours and, you know, other materials. And, you know, what would this shop look like? And I, th I think... Um, there were lots of different ideas, but they tended to revolve around similar things. Yeah, I remember one thing which came out of the team I was working with in particular um, was this notion of expansiveness. Uh, I mean, there was a part of the workshop where the flying object team had us examine different uh, opposites across a whole uh range of different areas so you know whether something which seen was being um, an outdoor or an indoor experience you know those sort of things and yeah they went across all these different areas and um when it came to designing this pop-up store experience which came through really strongly was the notion that basil uh, or in this case the derivative product a, a pesto product was seen as being this very expansive thing uh, and that actually all of the visual elements of it needed to have that same sort of expansiveness that people associated with some of the blue sky vistas that they'd seen on holiday or out in the rural environment. And if you took that insight just on its own without seeing the context that had come behind it, I'm not quite sure you would actually understand the the relevance um to that particular project or have been able to arrive at it and yet when you looked at it in as a whole it made total sense and you could imagine how those visuals would all fit together and how they would contribute to that brand feeling and yet i think only a design process like this where you really got into the depths of the multi-sensory elements uh, of that particular product would have enabled you to get to that kind of tangential association which at the end felt so right for the particular product yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we talked about music and and uh, and musical instruments and, and the style of music and, and all sorts of other things. I, I even wonder, Marek, whether we shouldn't set our, our listeners perhaps a little uh, little challenge here to, to, to go away and, and sniff at Basil for a little while and then tell us perhaps, you know, what music does it remind them of? Absolutely. That sounds and, like a great challenge. And, uh, and, you know, tweet us back at hash mexbasil. <laughs> a whole new hashtag for people yeah so um it, it's at mexfeed is the twitter handle and then hashtag mexbasil let's hear what people's musical associations are with basil and uh, the wonderful green leaves uh, or you can email us it's design talk at mobileuserexperience.com um, so moving on from from Basel, uh, you know, it was uh, an engaging workshop. It's something we did in the middle of the day as well, when you know usually people's energy levels are, are getting a little bit low. So it was a good way of reinvigorating people. Um, but you know, there was such a wealth of, of other things as well which came up um, during the the event. We went, um, you know, into all kinds of different areas around research, um, but also around uh, design practice itself um and then into you know, some areas which potentially are uh, seen as tangential links and yet i think could be key to how we improve some of these core skills like user research in the future and for me one of the really memorable ones with this uh, was aaron garner do you want to tell people a bit about what aaron had to say alex Yes. Now, of course, we've had Aaron on the podcast. So if you've been listening, you would have heard him back a little while ago. But he came to talk to us um, and he uh, came to talk to us about uh, facial expressions um, and in particular universal facial expressions and how you can recognize what someone's thinking in something like a quarter of a second. 
Yeah, and that timing was key to it, uh, as Aaron explained to us. You know, there's this difference between uh, how we react to things uh, and how we respond to things. Uh, and it's really the way in which your face flickers for less than half a second. You know, it's that first little clue of instinctive uh, reaction that you give uh, when you're asked a question uh, or when you see something for the first time, which often holds the truth about how you really feel before you start to modulate that response based on your interpretation of the social context or you know what you feel you should be saying in that situation. Uh, and this really is at the heart of how we design experiences because so much is based on those qualitative interviews, often combined with some quantitative data these days as well. Um, but you know, a lot is still done on these kind of one-to-one interviews or group sessions uh, where we try to get into people's motivations. And if we're not really understanding the truth of those motivations, if we're just accepting what people say at face value and not reading uh, the deeper sort of uh, reaction that they're giving, then there is a risk that the research is flawed from the outset. Uh, And some of the techniques which he shared with us, I think, give us a clue as to how we can get much more accurate with that. Yeah, and I think it's important to stress here for for uh, anyone who might be a little bit sceptical, is that it's it's not the sort of body language stuff like you know you scratch your nose and it means someone's lying. It, it's these these are sort of universal expressions that they, they link back to to seven basic emotions. Those emotions are fear, surprise, anger, disgust, contempt, sadness, and happiness. And and they they're just momentary, absolutely instinctive things that that happen. And and the, just those seven are are. Um, have been found to be universal right across the globe, even in, in you know, uh, remote tribes in, 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 you know, that, that haven't had contact with Western civilization. So we, we know that these things are universal. Um, and, and there were some slightly surprising things that came out of that um, in terms of how you deal with people and, and what it signals about life in general, actually, in some cases. I think he suggested that if, you, if you know, a couple that uh, look at each other with contempt uh, are likely to be divorced within five years. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was not all of it was was comfortable knowledge, and indeed the circumstances in which Aaron himself is is applying this. Um, yeah, typically he's working with uh, special forces around the world, with organisations that look after things like airport security, where actually being able to read people's uh, emotions accurately it can be very much a, a life or death situation. But you know, I found it fascinating how much of this potentially transfers to the area of digital experience design and being able to get into that uh, subtle, more accurate understanding of, of user behavior and then carrying that through the rest of the, the design exercise. Yeah, absolutely. So other highlights for you, Alex? So I think we, you know, we, we have to talk about Ed Rex. You know, he, uh, we, again, he's someone who we've had on the podcast previously, but he, he came along and uh, came to talk to us about his um, artificial intelligence uh, music service, which uh, allows you with just a few selections of, of genre or musical instrument um, and deciding how long you want your piece of music to, to, to produce uh, something really pretty, pretty damn good. Well, indeed, it is the the intro music to the Mex podcast, as provided by Ed Rex and, and Duke Deck. Yeah, and 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 you know, he played for us a um, a, a, a YouTube clip uh, of of a girl who'd produced the music, and then over the top of it, sung some 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 lyrics and a song that she'd uh, I, I guess she'd written. I, I can't remember. How, I think was she was she ten years old or something of that kind. Yeah, I mean, very young age, uh, and yet with you know really quite a good voice. Yeah, fantastic. And and I and I guess there there are two things here. One, one is that he was talking about the intuitiveness uh, versus the versatility of different musical instruments. And we, we talked about all sorts of things like, like pianos and how, you know, the piano is, is quite versatile. You know, you can play chords and, and it has a, a sort of quite a broad range and it's fairly intuitive. You know that, you know, you just, you can press down the keys and, and they make music. So that's quite easy to do. Um, but it's not really easy. And it's also, you know, not, not as versatile as, say, uh, an electric keyboard that can, you, where, where you can change the sounds. And it's certainly not as versatile as a PC. And, and that then took us through to something like 
his AI uh, engine, which uh, allows you to to basically just create music uh, easily and 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 a whole range of it. So so you know AI is the ultimate uh, musical instrument that that gives you both intuitiveness and versatility. But there was one thing that struck me um, beyond this, which was, you know, if we abstract this idea and, and stop thinking about artificial intelligence for a moment, this two by two matrix that he drew up, um, you know, with, with versatile on one axis and intuitive on the other, that's really the very root of user experience, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it, it's a, a very easy way to benchmark you know, how likely certain profiles of people are to engage with the service depending on that desire for complexity their understanding of that sort of uh, versatility and, and the range of features available to them versus how immediately intuitive it is uh, and I think one of the things that I took away from it was this sense that potentially artificial intelligence not just applied to the world of music as they have done at, at Duke Deck, um, but in the broader sense uh, is actually something which can help uh, organizations to reach that sweet spot of both very versatile uh, and very intuitive by the way in which it abstracts some of the complexity which previously would have been necessary to deliver that kind of depth uh, of digital experience and it's still quite early on with it. And a lot of these experiences powered by artificial intelligence at the moment still feel quite scientific uh, and experimental. Um, but I think Duke Deck is an example of one of the new generation where actually the experience design, the way in which that power is delivered to the user does achieve that kind of effect where it ends up um, actually making that whole experience that much more capable, but yet remains intuitive or perhaps even enhances the intuitiveness for the user by the virtue of the artificial intelligence engine behind it. So if, there are, if there's anything that perhaps, you know, we'd like to think about for the next MEX, you know, what was it that we didn't cover that really is, is pertinent right now that maybe we should think about for the next time? Well, we actually had uh, quite a lot of thoughts on this um, through a session that we did towards the end of the event. We'd just gone through the, the final part of that mech signs exercise, which had started the day before. Actually, we got people to put into practice some of the uh, design principles, which they'd learned from looking at the sort of signage that we see in the, the physical world. And we went through you know, some quite um, sort of strict uh, design iterations, time design iterations to get to that. Uh, and then after we'd all you know, talked about that, we all got round uh, as a group and just started to throw off ideas about what might come a year out from where we are now and what might be important then. Um, and there were several things, really, but one which really resonated with me is this idea um, of how we balance the kind of uh, space which people feel they need from digital experiences with the increasingly immersive potential that they have uh, and where those things fit into people's lives in a way that feels right for them as individuals. And that's a really nuanced and subtle thing. I don't think there's any one right answer to that, but the very fact that it's emerging as a question, I think suggests that you know this is something which is going to become a bigger part of the conversation in the future. Was there anything for you which um, you know you felt that we should be looking at for for future discussions? Well, uh, yeah, I mean there were, there were a couple of things, but one of the things that really jumped out at me is you know, and I have this this ongoing fear of a dystopia that we're sort of running towards, and each time you know we make a fantastic step forward in technology, it, it feels like we're getting closer to um, I don't know uh, Blade Runner or or, or, or uh, the Matrix or RoboCop, um, and um, you know th this is an ongoing fear that I have, and it's and it's it's something that I think we need to be honest about and, and and talk about because I know I'm not the only person who thinks, yeah, this is this is great stuff, but you know there, there's there's a cynical side to it potentially. Well, and potentially an exploitable side as well. I mean, that was uh, the talk which actually closed out the event from uh, Jonathan Lovett Young, who's spent his career working with some of the world's largest brands. Uh, and 
has come away from doing that work really, I think, questioning some of the motivations of those brands. And given the capabilities that digital now has to be able to push brand messages and experiences into all elements of our lives, when is it appropriate to do that? Who should be managing our preferences for that? Uh, And starting to raise things like the question of, well, do we need to look at public ownership of those kind of uh, preferences rather than it being something which is siloed within whichever company uh, you've bought your device or your operating system from? Is it now reaching a point where these pieces of digital infrastructure are actually so fundamental to our experience of lives um, that we need to start thinking about new frameworks of governance for them? Yeah, and, and, we, and we really need to talk about it, um, you know, and put, put the subject on the table and, and, and deal with it. Yeah, and it, it certainly um, looks like this is going to be something which becomes ever more complex rather than ever simpler, which is great in the sense of, uh, you know, there's always going to be, um, you know, that uh, desire to, to talk about it and to um, get these conversations going on, on podcasts like this. But it doesn't make the job of um, putting that into practice any easier, I'm afraid. It doesn't. And, but let, let, me, let me perhaps try and uh, turn us on to a more positive note. There's one side of, of, of this, of course, is, is the dystopian side. But then the, the other side is, um, up until now, we've, we've been dealing very much, as you said, right at the start of this conversation, with this XY flat device that has, been, that has really taken over our lives um, in, in positive or, or, or sometimes negative ways. But generally, it's, it's, a, it's a huge boon. And one of the things that, that jumped out of the second part of our workshop in, in, at, towards the end of, of day two was how, while this rectangle is a little bit imprisoning, we're starting to break out of it. We're starting to break out of this flat XY box and coming into this, um, well, to use your metaphor, the, the metaphor of the orb, where we have this um, multi-sensory, multimodal, cross-modal way of working with our, our, our devices, which is, is liberating. I mean, it's it's really uh, quite fantastic what's what's coming up. And I think therein lies the, the potential. Um, and as I said, I think it, there's a, there is a complexity to doing that, which shouldn't be underestimated. There's also a responsibility to what that brings, which shouldn't be underestimated. You know, for the very first time, we're actually, I think, now genuinely capable of creating highly emotionally engaging experiences. People have always talked about the idea that digital experiences at their best engage people on an emotional level. And the reality has been that those have been very few and far between when we've been in this world of flat canvases because it's just difficult to do. But with some of the technologies which are emerging now, as you say, it is becoming possible to do a lot more. Uh, And there is that sense of hesitation and fear i think among practitioners uh, and among users themselves as to whether that can become something which encroaches on life but it does also hold the potential to do some really enriching things if we get it right um, so perhaps you know as a, an overall theme for looking at this in the future that's where we need to be focusing our attention is we've moved the conversation on now to we know these things are coming here are some examples of what they may be like that was very much where we were um, in October uh, with this discussion Uh, and now you know we need to turn our attention to what are some of the ways that we can get ahead of developing best practice to ensure that as we start to deliver them to people in the market uh, they do genuinely bring meaning and, and enriching experiences into people's lives which are relevant to them as individuals. And for practitioners in this field, there, uh, there is a wealth of opportunity to, to get excited about all sorts of different technologies and, and uh, experiences. You know, really, the, it's one of the rare cases, I think, where you can really say that the, the, you know, the world is your oyster now. Well, very much so. Very much so indeed. And, um, you know, I think we've really just scratched the surface of uh, 
all of the insights and discussion which came out of these two days, not least because of the quality of participation uh, that people brought with them. And we had people there from all different industry backgrounds and and job roles, uh, and it it thrived on that sort of diversity. So I think there's going to be a lot more to come, which no doubt we will come back to in future podcasts. Uh, We were also able to record uh, a bit of special material as as interviews for the podcast while we're at the event, which uh, we should be able to share details um, later. Uh, and um, there's a bunch of different uh, write-ups and uh, insights from the, the workshops that we had, which will be coming out through mobileuserexperience.com and the MEX newsletter over, over the next little while. Um, so we'll be looking forward to sharing those with you. So Alex, any final thoughts uh, on the event or a, a memorable moment for you, which um, you'll take away from MEX 16? Well, let's not forget, this is the, the first Max where we've actually had a live broadcast from India. Of course, yes. Uh, Apala Lahiri Chavan uh, came in and gave our um, opening session on the, the second day. Uh, and I think really opened people's eyes to some of these um, questions in the broadest global sense about uh, what user experience practitioners need to be thinking of. That was indeed a memorable moment, not least because the Skype link actually worked for the whole session which uh, i think is a rarity at conferences <laughs> what uh, any any final thoughts from you then mary well i think you know we've mentioned it previously but for me really the standout thing having now done 16 of these events over the last 12 years um, was that sense of community and participation uh, and that that was achieved despite the fact not everyone there would necessarily have identified themselves as being part of the user experience industry. Yeah, that was the beauty of it, particularly among some of the speakers that we had, was they brought in learnings from other areas. And yet, I think in coming together for those two days, people were able to expand their horizons beyond the sort of silos which exist within the world of digital experience design. Uh, And they did it because everyone was engaging with each other in an atmosphere of collaboration, of openly sharing ideas, and actually working together on creating some genuinely new concepts while they are at the event for two days. Uh, And that's, you know, you can't ask for more than that when it comes to an event. And it was a particularly productive one, I think, looking back over all the mexes we've we've had over the years. So uh, that was very gratifying to see. Absolutely. Well, it's been nice catching up as always, Alex. We will be back with another podcast in the not too distant future. Uh, But in the meantime, we'll make sure we include links to all the things we've talked about in the show notes, which you can find at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Do please get in touch. We're on Twitter at MexFeed, uh, and you can also reach us by email, designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. That's it for this edition of Mex Design Talk. If you've been enjoying the podcast, do please go on to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. This is one of the best ways to help others discover the podcast as it bumps us up the charts and helps to make it more visible. You can also share it uh, on social media or by referring people to the website at mobileuserexperience.com and the podcast section.